Last week, I offered about 50 ways of deepening daily life practice. And this was the initial session of a three-part session that I was inspired to do on this general general theme of how we deepen daily life practice. It was based on uh, a long-time interest in finding ways personally to have my deepest insights or my deepest uh, understandings, some of what I would experience on retreats, be there more and more in daily life. And I came to see this as, in a way, uh, one of the, if not the, most important uh, area of our practice. You know, that insights during meditation are important and they can guide us. And being quiet and calm is important in our meditation practice. But what's most valuable is how we are the other 23 and a half hours, or most of our days, right? In the words of Dizzy Gillespie, the great jazz man, it's not how far out you go, it's how you bring it home. (laughs) And so last time I went down a number of different... uh, possibilities for deepening practice, my hope then was that each person would listen for the one or two or three suggestions, pointers to deepening daily life practice that would resonate the most with you, that you would let my talk, as it were, connect with your own intuitions for what your own edges of learning are. And that you would make a commitment a week ago to have a week of really focusing on the one or two or three areas out of possibly up to 50 that I mentioned. And that you would focus on that in the last week. How many of, how many of us did Uh, focus and keep those areas of focus. Great. So I want to have some time and leave leave a good chunk of time to hear the results of what you found. And I'm going to uh, offer that again as a suggestion that you take, that you use the structure of our sessions and the support of the group as uh, a resource to help deepen for the next week as well. You may want to take exactly the same one or two or three. Again, it's a matter of really checking one's own wisdom, one's own intuition to see what really seems right to focus on. And a week is a really good amount of time to uh, make a commitment. It's that uh, workable, bite-sized amount of time and just focusing on one or two things, maybe three, but especially one or two for a week. You do it for a week, 
the neural pathways have shifted <laughs> after that week. And there's a way in which when you do that, you can, and then you, especially, then you have a quite a bit of momentum to keep it going for another week. And that, that again, as I mentioned last time, is uh, based on research about how we actually develop new habits or good habits. That's actually a key way that it occurs, like having the support, uh, having something workable, bite-sized. And the other theme I mentioned about that is when you do it for the week, give yourself a reward after the week. <laughs> okay? So, I'll, I'll, uh, this time, this week, I want to mention just uh, briefly some of the themes I mentioned last time. I want also to say a little bit more about the larger framework of practice that I think this whole interest in daily life suggests. And I want to, I, I'm going to hope that we have uh, enough time. I want to do actually uh, an experiential exercise which can also be very helpful for having us uh, take this next step, right? So I want you to maybe even tune in right now, just take a moment. If you did the one or two or three practices last time, that's fine. If you didn't, that's fine as well. But listen, each of us, and ask that question, what would be a way, what's the one, what are the one or two ways that I could deepen my daily life practice? See what those are. See what comes to you. And I'll also have us return at the end of the session to see what's there as well. I'm going to mention some further ways and you may, one of those may resonate a lot with you. So I'll just briefly uh, talk about uh, a number of different ways of deepening. And maybe before I do that, I think it could be useful to really point out that it's important to have a very broad vision of what our practice is about. You know, that we can get a little bit fixated at times on meditation. And I say this as someone who sometimes talks about what I do as being a meditation teacher. And I say that we can get fixated on meditation at a center that uh, calls itself, has called itself often, Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Okay? So, um, it's a danger of what we do, that we can get overly fixated on meditation and lose a sense, really, of the breadth of the kind of transformation we're looking at. In other words, meditation is a very important tool, but it can get, get overly, uh, become an overly narrow focus where we lose sight of the, of, of the uh, breadth of the practice. Um, what? Yeah, let me say, I'll say a little bit more what I mean. Essentially, that, um, that there are a lot of different dimensions of how we transform. 
And the whole idea is that we transform from greed, hatred, and delusion to love, wisdom, and skillful action. That's the short version, okay? Uh, And we we all have already a certain amount of love, wisdom, and skillful action, but we want to increase that Till, in, till more and more, that's all there is. And so we have this uh, you know, beautiful, inspiring, traditional vision of practice, which has its total aim of transforming our being so that we are manifesting wisdom, love, compassion, equanimity, skillful action, and we're each doing it in different ways. It's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but broadly speaking, that's what we're doing. It's, you know, it's a beautiful, simple vision. It's there in Buddhist tradition and many other spiritual traditions, and it's, that can be very significant for many people who don't necessarily think of themselves as spiritual or religious, saying, I want to develop in love. I want to develop in wisdom and so forth. And traditionally there is a, a broad sense of the kind of training that's necessary to get there. So the training was often understood in terms of three aspects. Uh, ethical training, which has to do with action, uh, training in wisdom, and training in meditation. And there's an integrated sense of a path. And if you think also of the Noble Eightfold Path, I think as I mentioned last time, Two of the factors, two of the eight factors have to do with developing wisdom, which can also be developed through study, through talking, through listening to teachings, and so forth. And two, three of them have to do more or less with having the integrity in our action and daily lives. So there's an emphasis on livelihood, sometimes what's called right livelihood, uh, right speech, and right... Uh, action, which is more or less covers the other dimensions of being ethical. And so when I was speaking about, uh, maybe I'll finish, then there, there are three that are particularly focused on meditation. One is uh, right mindfulness or skillful mindfulness. Another one is right concentration. And a third one is right effort, which has to do with more or less the effort to continue to be aware, be present, keep practicing, you know, the effort to say, what am I doing right now? Where is my mind? <laughs> you know, and so forth. And so even with that, you can see that meditation involves three of the eight components, right? And that's partly what I was meaning, that even in a traditional sense, we can, we want to have a broad sense of things. And... Um, I often think about a contemporary version of our path also I think is quite broad. It includes all of what I've mentioned, but it also includes, uh, I think, the integration of our meditation, our wisdom and so forth with a number of different contemporary resources, particularly psychological traditions and traditions uh, that relate to our social conditioning and particularly bring in dimensions such as social justice. That being, you know, as uh, Sylvia sometimes uh, labels it, right citizenship, <laughs> you know, or skillful citizenship. And I think that there are a number of ways in which 
that actually point to very exciting dimensions of contemporary practice, how we're integrating psychological dimensions with traditional notions of practice. So we bring in, as I do, an emphasis on working with the judgmental mind. <coughs> that brings in a lot of aspects of psychology as well as traditional practice. <clears throat> and we can also bring in attention to our social conditioning. I think it's a significant part of our practice. We can look to conditioning around gender or race or class or educational level or religion. We know that these, this kind of conditioning can really affect us. And it's part of coming to be a free person to work through that social conditioning, I think. There's a very nice um, <coughs> formulation of this by uh, Ken Wilber and people who work in the um, integral movement, then they use very uh, ordinary language to say that there are four aspects, really, of contemporary awakening, or contempor I should say contemporary learning, spiritual practice, whatever we call it. The first is waking up, which is connected with the traditional model of awakening. And then there's um, growing up, which is connected for them with the psychological dimensions and really seeing where one's own developmental edges and recognizing that one might be an adult but is not fully grown up. Anyone relate to that? Okay. <laughs> okay. And then there is the uh, third dimension is called cleaning up. And this is particularly working with, again, especially psychological dimensions where you might have stuff that's unworked out. And again, this could be where the judgmental mind comes in, where there might, or there might be a history of shame or trauma, or you know, generally what we speak about when we speak about our psychological, quote-unquote, stuff. Anyone have psychological stuff that's not work, fully worked out? Well, this is, this is what's being pointed to in terms of cleaning up, sometimes what we call the shadow area, you know, the shadow material. And then the fourth area that they point to is called showing up, which um, uh, can be interpreted as actually being of service to others, showing up in the world and bringing one's gifts integrated with one's spiritual practice into the world. So it's a nice model. But it's interesting because the last three of them don't show up really clearly on the traditional map of practice. Right? And so there's, I think what I'm pointing to is a broader sense of practice. So there's, um, uh, there are ways in which there can be confusion about this. And it's partly what I was talking about in, in mentioning that we can get overly fixated on meditation and not pay attention both to the other dimensions of traditional practice, but also to these more contemporary ways of using the language I just brought up of uh, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Right? Um, there's a cartoon that kind of points to this issue. It shows two people at a crossroads, and on one side it says, path to enlightenment, on the other side it says, highway of life, and they seem to be going in opposite directions. Right? So, what's going on? So here... We're trying to have the signs go in the same direction, but we need a little bit of thinking about the map 
of practice to be able to do that. It could be easy if we have just a traditional model to see daily life as in conflict with our spiritual practice. And we can even find in the traditional teachings, in the teachings of the Buddha, he often talks about daily life as being overly dusty and not a suitable place for the life of awakening. Later Buddhist traditions sometimes shifted that and made it more of an option, but it's pretty clear that if you were you know, uh, spiritually serious, as it were, you'd probably become a monk or a nun in that context, right? And yet we have probably most, almost everyone, or maybe even most or all of us, may have deep, uh, we could say, call them uh, spiritual impulses, but are not inclined to be a monk or nun. So how do we, how do we bring that all together? So there's a story that I want to uh, read which illustrates some of the, this confusion about the uh, importance of meditation compared to uh, the breadth of possible practice. And this is from, this is from a story about uh, Achan Sumedho. Achan is a Thai word that means teacher. And Sumedho is a Western uh, monk. He's, he has stayed a monk. He's in his probably middle or late 70s now. He's American. Uh, he has been a, a monk for, uh, I think, well, probably close to 50 years since he was in his 20s. And this is a story of when he was young at practice, learning a lesson about this point that I've just been making. Okay, so here, here it is. Achan Sumedho talked repeatedly about being enlightened rather than becoming enlightened. Be awake now be enlightened to the present moment. It is not about doing something now to become enlightened in the future. That kind of thinking is bound up with self and time and bears no fruit. This is from a book called Small Boat, Great Mountain by um, one of his colleagues named uh, Achan Amaro, who is British and um, used to live around here. Some of you know was the co-abbot of a Bayagiri monastery in Mendocino County. He, but he's back now in England as the abbot of the monastery where Achan Sumedho used to be monastery, uh, the abbot. Okay? And so this is a wonderful book about the connection between insight meditation practice and Tibetan Dzogchen practice. Very, very interesting. Okay. Achan Sumedho himself was not always so clear on this point that was just made. He would often tell the story about his own obsessions with being a quote-unquote meditator. His teacher, Achan Cha, who was the Thai teacher that uh, I, I once studied with, who died in 1991, was a great teacher, a Jack Cornfield's teacher. Uh, Achan Cha, Cha, Cha's method of teaching emphasized formal meditation practice to quite a great extent, but he was also extremely keen on not making the formal meditation distinct from the rest of life. That's my point, really. He spoke about maintaining a continuity of practice, whether you were walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. The same was true for eating, using the bathroom, and working. The point was always to sustain a continuity of awareness. He used to say, if your peace rests on the meditation mat, when you leave the mat, you leave your peace. <laughs> okay. He was once given a piece of forested land on a hillside in his home province in Thailand. 
the generous supporter who had donated it said to him, if you can find a way to make a road to the top of the mountain, I will build a monastery there for you. Always up for a challenge, he spent a week or two on the mountain and found a pathway up. He then moved the entire monastic community out there to work on the road. Okay? Achan Samedo was a recently arrived monk. He had been there a year or two by this time and was a very serious meditator. He hadn't been keen to leave the settled life at the main monastery, but he joined in and there he was, breaking rocks in the sun, pushing barrows of rubble around and working hard with the rest of the community. After two or three days, he was getting hot, sweaty, and cranky. At the end of the day, after a 12-hour shift, everyone would sit down to meditate and would be reeling. Achan Sumedho thought, this is useless. I'm wasting my time. My meditation has fallen apart completely. This is not, leave, this is not helping the spiritual life at all. He carefully expressed his concerns to his teacher. I'm finding that all the work we do is harmful to my meditation. I really think it would be much better for me if I didn't take part in it. I need more sitting and walking meditation, more formal practice. That would be very helpful for me. And it's what I think would be the best. Achan Cha said, Okay, Sumedho, yes, you can do that. But I'd better inform the other community members so that everyone knows what you're doing. Uh, Achan Amaro at this point says he could be very wicked in this way. <laughs> at the next community meeting, he said, I want to make an announcement to everybody. Now, I know we have all come up here to work, make this road, I know that we are all working hard at breaking rocks and carrying gravel. I know this is important work for us to do, but the work of meditation is also important. A Sumedho has asked me if he can practice meditation while we build the road. <laughs> I have told him that this is absolutely all right. I do not want any of you to think any critical thoughts of him. It is absolutely all right with me. He can stay alone and meditate, and we will continue building the road. <clears throat> Achan Cha was out there from dawn till dusk. When he wasn't working in the road, he was receiving guests and he was teaching. So he was really cranking it out. In the meantime, Achan Sumedho stayed alone and meditated. He felt pretty bad on the first day. <laughs> and even worse on the second. By the third day, he couldn't stand it any longer. He felt tortured and finally left his solitude. He, re he rejoined the monks broke rocks, carried gravel, and really gave himself to the work. Uh, his teacher, Achan Cha, looked at the enthusiastic young monk with a foot-wide grin and asked, Enjoying the work, Sumedho? <laughs> yes, I am. Isn't it strange that your mind is happier now in the heat and the dust than it was when you were meditating alone? Yes, it is. <laughs> The lesson, Achan Sumedho had created a false division about what meditation is and isn't, when in fact there is no division at all. <clears throat> when we give our hearts to whatever we do, to whatever we experience, or what is happening around us without personal agenda, her preference is taking over, the space of awareness is exactly the same. So interesting, isn't it? We're just really being asked to find ways to be mindful, to be aware, to be caring, to be kind in more and more moments. And yet it's not easy to uh, do that, right? 
It's not easy to do that in all the flow of our lives. And we can often have this uh, sense that meditation is really the center. And I think it's actually um, been a dominant tendency in the West. And I want, I want to make a few points here, which to me are quite important, about why that's the case, and really actually connect it somewhat with the whole um, understanding of, of our history, actually. Both the history of how uh, Buddhism and meditation have come to the West, but also an understanding of where we are historically and developmentally as a culture. I'm going to say a little bit about that, which to me is both pretty interesting and it gives some perspective and it gives us also a sense of what's important right now. So bear with me with this. It's, it's an area that's of interest to me that I don't bring that often into my talks, right? Because I have actually given a lot of attention uh, over the years to understanding our contemporary world, the modern world, the so-called postmodern world, and where we are right now from an evolutionary perspective. And I think it can be helpful because to really um, give us some perspective. So I was going to have a flip chart, but the flip charts are all up in the retreat area. So I'm going to have to uh, talk about this. And I'll try to do it very, very simply. Um, and I think it can help to have some sense of historical perspective about how the contemporary world developed, particularly, and I'll be particularly focusing on what's happened in the Western world in the last um, three or four hundred years. And I'll do that briefly. And I think increasingly, of course, the Western world is coming to the entire world, right? Through what we call globalization. Um, the, the Western Middle Ages we're, I'll be very simplistic here, somewhat simple, hopefully simple, not simplistic, take that back. So the Middle Ages in the West, broadly speaking, were dominated by religion, right? And everything was caught up, and it was dominated by the Catholic Church, right? Everything was caught up with religion. Every aspect of, of life and knowledge, if you wanted to know something about the world, you understood it through the religious doctrine. If you wanted to know how to live with others ethically, you did it through the church doctrine. If you wanted to know about yourself, you did it through the church doctrine. What started to happen in the West probably 400 years ago, 300, 400 years ago, we had a number of ways that the domination of all of life by religious institution started to shift. There was the Protestant Reformation, which took a lot of the power of the Catholic Church away. There started to be countries where that wasn't dominant. But more specifically, there was the rise of science, you know, uh, which developed starting in the 1600s and came to have more and more influence and is in danger of having less influence. <laughs> <laughs> at the current time, we're, we're at a pivot place, right? But it came to have more and more influence, and it came to be seen that if you wanted to know something about the external world, science might be more reliable than religious doctrine, right? That was a revelation. That was a revolution. You, it also, with the democratic 
revolutions, with the political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries, you also started to have a sense that there was a different way to organize a society that could be based on democratic values and a way of working out things through discussion, through policy discussions, through town meetings, as we had in the U.S. for a long time, and that one could actually do this through careful thinking, listening to everyone, democratic free speech, and so forth. What, these, what this basically did was to um, take territory such as knowledge of the external world and how we organize a society and take it away from the domination of the church. And that's, so we have the separation of church and state, right? And we have the carving out of these territories. Now, there was one dimension which wasn't really, um, kind of wasn't, was a little different. And that would be, could be called the inner dimension. The inner dimension by that point um, was also dominated by the church, the mystical and contemplative dimensions of religion, which had been quite strong. The meditative dimensions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which had been quite strong, um, you know, probably starting in 300, 400, 500. And there had been very strong contemplative traditions, monastic traditions, mystical traditions in the West. And those generally had started to decline in the 12th, 13th, 14th century for different reasons. And so if you were interested in meditation, you'd have a very hard time finding that in Western religion starting about the 15th, 16th century, particularly after that, particularly last three or four hundred years. So that if you're interested in meditation, mysticism, and so forth, in Western society, that was marginalized. You'd have to go, as I did once, to and when I lived in Kentucky, to the Abbey of Gethsemane, where you find a relic of the Middle Ages in a uh, Trappist monastery, where you can really have that genuine Catholic con contemplative practice there. And you know, I think I've mentioned also that I've had friends who've looked for genuine mystical traditions in Judaism. And they've, I had one friend who searched for like 10 years before he got to Israel and found a few people who would teach him the ancient uh, Kabbalistic teachings. Now this was you know, up until 40 or 50 years ago. Right? That was the situation. And so the, um, the inner dimension was lost in Western religion. All of a sudden you have Buddhism come and the, it offers a way of inner development, particularly through the meditation. Now the complication is that Buddhism comes to the West with these very valuable techniques, but it also comes from a pre-modern tradition. Right? And so it hasn't gone through the process um, of getting integrated with science, democracy, and so forth. That's happening right now, right? Are you following me? Okay? Okay. Do you find this interesting? Yeah, yeah good. That's good. <laughs> I do. And, um, and so what happens 
is that you have Westerners who are essentially have been cut off from inner experience for three or four hundred years. And all of a sudden, there's Buddhist meditation, which comes without, relatively speaking, without dogma, is accessible in people like Jack Kornfield, who comes back from Thailand, brings back the meditation. We get to study it. Tremendous resonance with Western culture. And we're primarily interested in this inner dimension, right? And we're less interested in the other material that comes with it. And so, even at Spirit Rock, we have almost no ritual. Very little ritual. Not, not even what Jack discovered in Thailand. Not the ritual. We don't pay so much attention to the ethics. Uh, we pay some, but that's not a big focus of our teaching, right? It's primarily on meditation and wisdom. So, um, do you see the setup? Westerners hungry for inner experience. Meditation comes. And we gravitate there. And so that becomes the primary emphasis of what we do. Even though it doesn't give us complete guidance, far from it, about how to live our lives and how to integrate it with spiritual practice. Right? And in fact, the way that the inner dimension is understood in the modern world is that it's private. In other words, you can do whatever you want and go to whatever church you want, just don't bring anything of that into the public world. You know, don't bring it into science and don't bring it into the public sphere. You, know, you can be religiously motivated like Dr. King, but you can't bring religion into public policy. Again, that, that was generally the understanding there's danger of regression at this point point historically, but uh, that was the historical understanding. And so that where could spirituality fit? It fits in the private realm, which means that it's kind of what you do in your private time, and it's not necessarily connected with what you do the rest of the time. That's kind of the setup, right? Does that make some sense? So that's our kind of our situation. Now, a few other comments is that... um, when we look to the way that this world gets structured, what's, um, what's very striking is that the different parts of life, knowledge of the external world, what we do in public sphere, you know, how we do policy, how we do government, and the private realm are all in separate containers, by and large. They're fragmented off from each other. So a lot of people have said the big issue of the contemporary world is that we're overly fragmented. We don't have integration. We don't have integration of the different parts of our lives, right? We don't have... Science is disconnected from values, you know, and our, our social values are disconnected from what we might think in a deep inner or private way, especially if there's spirituality involved. So there's a kind of a fragmentation, which is kind of the modern faith. So a lot of people have said that where the cutting edge is socially and evolutionarily is to have more integration of the different parts of our lives, which we know personally is hard, right? It's hard to have the integration of your private life with your work, with, your, you know, with um, how you see the world, with social engagement. This is hard. There are a lot of feel like a lot of barriers, right? It's like, okay... Uh, you know, I have to leave a lot of myself behind when I go to work, right? 
So this is uh, this is a big a big challenge, right? And so there, you know, we all have, I think, may feel this push for wholeness and for integration. And I would say that is an evolutionary edge of development. That's exactly what we need in our world, right? And you can point to it, and you can see a lot of signs of it, right? You can see signs of people trying to integrate science more with values. You can see workplaces, you know, a lot of them happening around here, where you can bring more of yourself to the workplace, right? And where that you can, you know, engage in personal growth and have that reflected in the workplace. A lot of experimentation with that that is occurring. And you can also see it in this idea that I'm suggesting that our spiritual practice really ideally needs to be there in all the parts of our lives, right? To really be full. And you can, we can feel that. Do you see how these are all coming together? And yet it's hard. And this is one thing that I, you know, maybe one other point to make is that there's something very significant about how bringing all the parts of our lives together, particularly bringing our spirituality, and speaking to people here, our spirituality, our spiritual practice into all the parts of our lives, and particularly uh, calling us to work on the psychological material but also engage socially, is really necessary to have the resources to deal with the large systemic issues that we face, right? I think that having, you know, my, as I've said a few times here, we really need to have any movements that try to address some of these large systemic issues like climate issues or, you know, oppression based on race or gender or, or uh, religion, uh, economic inequality, you know, and the political challenges, we need to have spiritual resources or we won't have enough resources. That's my own belief, that we really need to have people who are activists who have all these uh, spiritual abilities or it's not going to work very well. I mean, that's, that's a whole other point I could make. I believe that, that we need all of our resources now to come forth much more fully to have the power to deal with these large issues, these large systemic issues, you know, which also includes, the one I didn't mention, is the, the very real threat right now of massive moral and political regression in our society. It's a very, very, in my view, a very real threat. And interestingly, and this is another perspective, interestingly, that danger, that significant danger of moral and political regression is calling forth people to say, I need to come into more of action. Do you see how the current administration is actually helping to push along evolution? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Do you get that point? Like they're, you know, we weren't quite doing it on our own, so here's, okay, here's a kick in the proverbial derriere, you know, um, to, to say, um, okay, um, we need you to, uh, you know, really uh, deepen your spiritual practice, but also uh, get it, get it, just get it off the cushion, right? As well, right? Get it out there in the world and have that connection. So that's interesting perspective, right? 
that's interesting that, that actually the times are calling for, by kind of pushing us, by shocking us, many of us, they're calling for the same kind of integration that one could look at earlier and say, yeah, well, this is uh, called for evolutionarily, but it's kind of not, it's happening in some places, but not in a strong way, right? So, anyway, so that's the framework, that's the kind of historical framework that I then can say, okay, listen for what might deepen your own practice. Because this is, uh, you know, and with the aim of having increasingly all the parts of your life aligned with your aspirations towards wisdom or love or skillful action, right? That's, so you see there's a bigger framework happening here, something else happening. But then within that, I still, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close just by mentioning some of what I named last time, particularly for people who weren't here, and then leave some time for us to talk together, especially to hear from people who had that one week uh, commitment last week up till, up till today. So I'll just mention a few of these. Listen again for the one or two or three which resonate with you. And then I'm gonna invite you, if you wish, to make that commitment. And you see you're making it not just for yourself, but for many beings, all beings, we say. Okay, so listen for these. So for some of us, we don't have a daily practice, right? If you don't have a daily practice, your edge of learning could be, I'm going to have every day next week do formal practice for 10 minutes or 20 minutes every day or whatever it is. For some of us who do, maybe we want to uh, have it be a little longer. Maybe we want to do a second period of formal practice. For some of us, our formal practice might be walking meditation. Maybe I do that every, every day. Each of us have different ways that we deepen. And one of the you know, blessings for me of working with a lot of people, both one-on-one and in groups and retreats, is I hear such a variety of ways of how people actually uh, skillfully uh, deepen. Right? It's so varied, you know, and there's a, there's a way for each of us, right? You know, some people don't do so well with formal practice, but they do really well with being mindful of their body when they walk or during yoga or something else. Or, you know, or some people don't do so well with mindfulness practice, but they do really well with compassion or loving-kindness practice. Some people don't do so well with sitting practice, but they do wonderfully bringing loving-kindness practice into their work. Or some people into their driving. <laughs> For some people, that's more advanced. <laughs> you know, you know. Um, so we might deepen. We might deepen in ways that I want to have more concentration in my formal practice, more emphasis on wisdom. Maybe I read more. Maybe I read every day for 15 minutes. Maybe I listen to talks more, right? These are some of them that I've mentioned. Maybe you focus on being aware um, when you're walking. Maybe you take a walk after lunch every day where you do mindfulness practice for 10 minutes. Maybe you find some part of your life. One of the things I mentioned that I'm very interested in is finding little five or 10 minute windows where we can bring in mindfulness or loving kindness. You know, you know just little things that you're already doing or that are part of your daily life where you can Bring in awareness. I mentioned for me, it's I do some knee exercises. I have to sit still for 10 minutes. Mindfulness practice, right? Other people, it might be 
walking from where you park at work to your office. You have five minutes everyday mindfulness, right? Things like that. Make that ritualized, it really can deepen, deepen practice. Where you, you know, take uh, uh, the first 10, 15 minutes of a meal, do it silently, right? Do it with your family, if they're willing. Do it on your own, if you're eating on your own. Do something like that. You know, th- everything I've just mentioned doesn't take more time which is really significant for deepening practice. You can find things that you bring practice in, but you're not taking a lot more time. That's valuable. Some of it's prioritizing what's important for me. I mentioned from my recent retreat that I've found it, if I want to deepen practice, I have to be a little bit careful about how much information I take in. And I've chosen since the last retreat to take in one-third to a half of the information that I used to take in, which is still plenty, right? How much information do you need? Do we get addicted to information? And so forth, right? A lot of it's looking into these issues, right? You can bring your practice into speech. Uh, try to develop your speech. I think next time I will do the exercises I was thinking of. I'll do them. We'll do, some of them involve speech practice. We'll do that next time. Have a Sabbath day, which I've been doing for 35 years, where you have one day a week where you have a little more formal practice, you know, old tradition, east and west, and some people do it two or three hours. You do two or three hours, you do sitting, walking, some reading, maybe you hike, but you try to have it be focused on awareness. These are all ideas. Again, listen for one or two of them. And as I mentioned last time, definitely do not do everything that I'm mentioning, if, it, if they're new. If you've already done three-quarters of them and there's just one or two more that you haven't done, that's fine. Okay. So, a lot of other things. Uh, let's see if there are any others I want to mention. Yeah, some for, just to close, for some of us, our edge of practice might be to work psychologically, like I was saying. Maybe I say, okay, I am going to work on that, that issue, you know, of, of getting, of how I get triggered or... I want to work on that shame or that lingering trauma, and I'm going to really do some focused work on that, right? That could be totally, fully part of one's edge of practice, right? So it's really seeing what that is. Uh, it could be responding socially. It could be going to the climate march next uh, Saturday and uh, try to have it fully connected with one's practice. could be that, Okay. So could be reading, could be being part of a group, and so forth. So um, I think that's enough. Okay. So again, listen for, I'll do this uh, practice we did just a while ago. Listen for what may have resonated with you about what you might like to do for the next week, one or two things. If you're ready to commit to those for one week, could be even if you, you know, may have come from a distance where it's not likely you'll be here next week, still you can make that commitment. Thank you. You can open your eyes now, if you wish. And how many of you would like to make that commitment 
for the next week. You can raise your hand. Okay, wonderful. Say, I'm happy. <laughs> okay, and that's great. And again, it's on your own. The key thing is to remember to do it later today and tomorrow. Okay, remember, you have to remember that because the hardest thing about daily life practice is not actually doing it, it's remembering to do it. Okay. So you can tie strings around or, you know, we have these little things which are reminders. We're, get a new bracelet at the bookstore. Okay, so let's um, open things up and um, be open for any questions, reflections, comments, uh, particularly people who want to report some of what you might experience, have experienced in the last week. Yeah. Let's, let's say our names also. Uh, I'm Nancy. One of the suggestions you made last week was um, it helps to create a new habit by hooking it to a habit that you already have. Right, right. And so I looked at what I do, and I chose... Um, I start every morning with a half an hour of yoga. Yeah. And I chose to practice mindfulness of the body, trying to keep my focus in the body rather than in my head yeah. during my morning meditation. And for my second item, I chose... Um, I already have a morning and afternoon meditation practice, um, but I have a tendency to allow my mind to plan things and yeah. go over things that I know that I need to do and figure out how I'm going to do them. Yeah. So I'm tr- trying... Actually, both of the things I chose have a, have a common thread, and that is to, is to get to a point in my life where I have that awareness of what's going on, what's yeah. going through my mind, yeah. and so that I can catch my mind before it goes off in a direction I don't want it to go, particularly if it's a direction where there's a lot of reactivity involved. Yeah. And I quickly realized that if I, I could probably focus on just those two things for the rest of my life yeah. and not have to worry about anything else because the benefit of being able to do those things and do them really well would yeah. be enough. Yeah, that's great, Nancy. Um, yeah, just to have that uh, have that focus, and as you as you point out, something like mindfulness of the body will go in all sorts of directions and have all sorts of other uh, positive uh, positive implications, positive results. So, so you it was especially uh, keeping mindfulness of the body after you did yoga, right? Me or during during yoga. Yeah, and then also uh, really just watching where your mind goes, right? And great, those, those are wonderful. Uh, and did you have a sense that it's actually, when we just did that practice, it's good to continue those? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Hello. <laughs> okay. I'm Susan, yeah. and I was here last week. And um, I think there were three things that really stayed with me. One was uh, not listening to the news so much. Yeah. Um, so whenever I got in my car, I promised myself that I could listen to one cycle of NPR yeah. and then just listen to music the rest of the day. Yeah. And it was interesting because they kind of say the same thing over and over again. But um, there's so many talk shows I usually listen to as well. Yeah. And um, it really helped my mind just calm down a whole lot. I really yeah, noticed the yeah. difference. It's a, yeah. It was a big one. Yeah. Thank, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Another one was um, being mindful of when and where and how I eat. Yeah. 
Um, that's a big one for me. I'm supposed to not eat as much sugar as I do. And so I was really noticing, hmm, when am I craving sugar? Yeah. And when am I giving in to it? Yeah. And um, when I was eating, uh, I'm often reading or writing notes of things yeah. I want to do during the day. So most of the week, I just ate. I didn't do anything else. And yeah. it was hard. It's hard, yeah. It was hard not to do other things. Yeah. But it was, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. So how many can relate to at least uh, one of the different points that Susan was making? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there, you know. And again, you know, the questioning of how much information we take in isn't at all to say that we shouldn't be informed. Obviously, from what I said, it's very important to be informed, but from my own experiments, and I think it's not such a hard thing to see, we, we do get a lot of repetition. We also have, there are aspects of addiction and getting hooked, right? Okay, okay, breaking news. Okay, got to get it. Okay, okay. Right, and, and so it's an interesting experiment. I found that I can be very well informed with about a third of the information I was taking in. So it, and it's really to, to do something like what you did, which is make a personal boundary. What does your wisdom say is a wise personal boundary? And they, and, I found myself doing something very similar to you. I said, okay, uh, I'm going to be at the New York Times website for the next 10 minutes. Okay, that's it. Because okay, you know that being on the internet, uh, one thing leads to another. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, um, something like that, having those boundaries. And, you know, and then, you know, interesting to work with eating and just to, there's a lot of inquiry. And yeah, just to, we have to do it in a way that feels workable. And, you know, if it feels too hard to do it for all the meals, see what's workable. Maybe it's one meal a day. Maybe it's half of one meal. Because if you could actually do half of one meal and really have that be with awareness and so forth and have that just be part of your daily life, that'd be very significant, right? And, of course, it could in time then stretch outward a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, please. Leslie, and uh, you talked about deconstructing habits last week, and so I just tried to scramble as many habits as possible, eat at a different time, swim at a different time, park in a different place. And I was just surprised how how much energy came from scrambling as many habits as I could throughout the day. Interesting, yeah, yeah. So to really... Do it in a way which uh, permits more awareness by doing it a little differently. Yeah, it's actually an old technique that's been used. I, I've heard of that being used in many uh, traditions going back quite a few hundred years, like where people would be given instructions, tie your shoelaces in a different way, <laughs> right? And because then it takes awareness. You know, it has its pros and cons as a spiritual technique, but it's... But it's, um, it's interesting. The, the main thing is we want to carve out more awareness. And that sounds wonderful. These are, this, these are great, great um, experiments, aren't they? Yeah, that's great, Leslie. Thanks. Anyone else? You, don't have to, you could also ask a question if you want. I mean, if there's something that you want more clarification on or a comment. It doesn't have to just be about the last week. Yeah, maybe up front. <coughs> I 
I was thinking about to bring more awareness in life about like writing every day yeah. how the day was because I find sometimes like the day are so full of events, emotions, things to do and so on then you don't even see the life going through, right? Yeah. And the idea of just being rigorous enough to write down what was, you know, few events or emotions or pleasure on yeah. Could makes me focus. That's right. More. That's great. And your name again was Raphael. Raphael? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so that's something that's actually a technique I did not mention last week and it's it can be really, really valuable. I'm I'm actually probably next year gonna be um, co teaching with a, a friend of mine a day long on writing a spiritual practice. You know, which will go into different dimensions of, of writing. But that can be very valuable. I know I've used that in my own practice um, at different times in my life, sometimes just to notice what's happening, as you're saying, to be as an aid to mindfulness. And for some of us, it's going to be really, really helpful. As an aid to mindfulness, sometimes just as a way, like when you do something like journaling, as a way to um, sort out a confusion, right? There's confusion. Writing for a lot of us can really help us to get some clarity. So it brings in the wisdom dimension, or it can be a way of actually helping us to touch maybe an emotion that might be hard to touch. So valuable in many, many ways. You know, we we don't always encourage that at retreats, but but because people can sometimes use that as escapism. I'm not suggesting at all that's what you're doing, but. Um, it can. I think. I think we could use it a lot more than we do. So it's very. That's very interesting, right? How many people use writing to some extent as an aid for your practice? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> we have time maybe for one more, one or two more. Anyone else? Yeah. Hi. Hi. My name is Marcia, yeah. and one of the things that I decided to do is kind of in, incorporate mindfulness with habits, you know, yeah. breaking of habits or whatever. So I promised myself every time I was in my car and the engine was going, I didn't touch my smartphone. Yeah. I didn't check it at the stop sign. I didn't check it at, at the uh, you know, stoplight or whatever. And all of a sudden, every time I, I felt like I wanted to do it, I was aware. Yeah. I'm not chasing the news. Yeah. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm being mindful of being a, a better driver. Yeah, and it uh, was very encouraging. Right there, there's uh, there's so much there again. There's so much, and, and we probably could give a series of talks on skillful spiritual dimension of using smartphones. <laughs> and we we have relatively little from the Buddha directly on that. <laughs> so, uh, but there's a, there's a lot there also. It's again, it's listening to your intuition. Here, again, setting a kind of boundary, right? And then using the boundary as a, as a starting point for inquiry and really seeing for the purposes of living more carefully, wisely, etc. That's wonderful. And, you know, it reminded me that uh, driving can really be a source of a lot of different ways that we find that we come back to our practice. You know, I know particularly for me after retreats when there's a lot of strong sense of awareness there. And it's almost like all I want to do is be present, right? And 
it, it switches the uh, attitude that is there. Is any, probably at least a few of us sometimes have an interest in getting through traffic lights and get, to get a little bit frustrated when the light stops right before you're there? Has anyone ever experienced that? <laughs> okay. And, you know, I found myself, uh, still do, but especially after retreats, the light uh, suddenly turns red. And rather than frustration, it's the, oh, some moments I can come back to myself. Some moments I can be present. How wonderful. The light, <laughs> I didn't go through that light. So it's like finding, and there probably are a hundred things like that in daily life, just like you did, where we can make a kind of switch that, that supports uh, being more present, being more aware, rather than being so much on habitual, automatic, and so forth. So really, and so look for driving. There are a lot of things like that. Again, one of the keys for deepening practice, one of the keys, is to find a lot of places which actually don't take any more time. You know, because many of us are, are quote-unquote busy. And if you can find things that actually deepen your practice, but that don't actually take more time, that can be of great benefit. And, and also a lot of creativity. And there's something very beautiful about just using your own wisdom and intuition. So let me, I think I'm going to uh, stop, you know, because of the time, because some people need to go, uh, right, we're just at a few minutes after 11. Um, but we'll have 12, <laughs> I did it again, didn't I? I did it again. So <clears throat> just to close, I'm going to, we'll continue with the same theme next week. I'm going to bring in the exercise that I was thinking of doing today. We'll, do, we'll definitely do that next time, which is a practical exercise, another set of tools. And um, again, maybe take notes during the next week. Find ways of deepening the, your practice. And uh, let me, we'll just have, we'll, we'll close with a few things. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention was that anyone who was here for the first time just should know that we record all of the talks here and they are on the website uh, dharmaseed.org. So if you wanted to go back and listen to last week, which gave those 50 plus or 50 suggestions, it's there on the web, right? And this talk will also be there and next week's as well. Uh, so let's just close with just a few things. One of them is, again, invite your own sense of... Uh, where you'll go from our session today, your intention. What are the one or two, possibly three things that you want to work with in the next week? And how might you start implementing that one-week commitment? How might you start reflecting that commitment later today? When, when are you going to think of a time that you'll actually next implement that plan? Trying to make it a little bit concrete.
Just think later today. When will I? When will I do that? Then we close as we typically do with the traditional uh, dedication of merit. Uh, traditionally, one would have the hands together, which is uh, okay if you don't want to do that. That's fine. And so we remember that we do this practice, uh, of course, very much for ourselves, for those in our lives. But I think as could be clear from our time today, we also do this very much for others, that our practice makes a difference in the world. And we offer the benefits of our practice out into the world, ultimately for the benefit of all beings, without exception. Remembering always that all beings includes us. So thank you very much. Thanks for your creativity, your commitment, and to be continued. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.